Thank you, Lord, that we've been given the great insight into your will. And we pray that we would be those who don't take that insight for granted, uh, that don't settle for little insight, but press on in our knowledge of you and your plans for the world and for us. And we pray that this morning might be an important step for us in that process of clarity of mind and having our hearts and minds aligned with yours. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, early in January of this year, the already troubled real estate giant, the China Evergrande Group, was ordered to destroy 39 of its high-rise buildings on an artificial island near Hainan within 10 days, with news sources saying it was because the building permits were unlawfully obtained. Knock them down. Huge buildings. In another Asian city, I heard of an air conditioning company which had to demolish its brand new factories because they were built on land they didn't have the right to use. They were working at cross-purposes with the higher authority. So all that time and effort, all of that steel and concrete poured into a venture with no future. What a waste. And this happens more often than it doesn't in our world. Broad is the way, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. It's so easy to deliberately or accidentally work at cross-purposes with God himself, to act against God's blueprint, to be unaware that there even is a blueprint. And so the history of man is largely the history of pouring oneself into things that will mean little or nothing when all is said and done. Needless waste, unnecessary regret, a dying father with broken relationships working out too late how to actually relate to his family. The mistakes of misspent youth most of us later refer to. Getting avoidable scars by scratching against reality while at uni or perhaps anonymous on an overseas trip. A life chronically depleted by concern for what others think decade after decade. Image, reputation, success. Significance from inadequate places. A life spinning its wheels with the busyness and priorities that the world gives us. We can simply get bogged down in good things like keeping up with school emails and processes, medical appointments, and life can just overtake us. Many a church too has spun its wheels over decades, preaching social justice or the newest version of morality, but dismissive or setting aside God's word and so lacking the new life of the spirit that works through the word. What a waste. Jesus says that houses built on such sand, when the testing rain comes, fall with a great crash. And so to build one's life without the closest reference to the great governor's regulations, our great architect's design and direction, is to invite ultimate regret. I used to do labouring work with my dad, a carpenter who's with us this morning here, and uh, he used to teach me the principle, measure twice, cut once, David. Measure twice, cut once. Now, perhaps he had good reason to reinforce that message to me. Sorry, Dad, was that 1.1 length of timber meant to be 1.2 metres in length? You can't uncut a piece of timber. Measure twice, cut once. And today we're given the chance to pause, to take stock, to measure, 
our lives afresh with close reference to God's unstoppable master plan for the world. So then, how do we align ourselves with God's purposes? How do we become like King David, a person after God's own heart? What is the Christian's heartbeat that will inspire such living if our living comes out from our hearts? Well, the three movements in the text, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, is the text I'll be focusing on this morning. They form something like a heartbeat as they do. He's come, Acts 1, 1 to 3. He's saving, verses 4 to 8. He's returning, verses 9 to 11. So like a heartbeat, he's come, he's saving, he's returning. He's come, he's saving, he's returning. There's God's master plan. There's history's blueprint. There's the heart of God's plan for the hearts of God's people. Well, first then, he's come. Verses 1 to 3. First, we get to recall excitedly with Luke, the author, that the Lord has historically and most certainly come for us. Luke wants us to recall volume 1 of his work, the the Gospel of Luke. And volume 2 is the book of Acts. What or whose acts are they to be called the book of Acts? Are the acts recorded here the acts of the apostles? Are they the acts of the Holy Spirit? Or perhaps the acts of the risen Lord Jesus? Well, the three are intimately tied together. And so the answer is yes and yes and yes. The apostles, the Holy Spirit, the risen Lord Jesus. Look with me at verses 1 to 3. In my former book, Theophilus, now Theophilus is referred to here and in Luke chapter 1. It could be a significant person funding the project, as happened as by a benefactor, or it could possibly be an address to us as a Christian, since the word means a lover or a friend of God one dear to God. It's a humble, sober description of what is an incredible account that Luke gives here. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. You sure did, Luke, and it was a wonderful work you put together. A spectacular account absorbed by grateful souls for the last 2,000 years since. When I was learning to write academic papers, one of the first lessons I had to learn was to write in a restrained, understated way. Uh, Exaggeration and embellishment invite sceptical reading. And so my supervisor would say, David, uh, replace that I have proven with a more humble, I've sought to demonstrate. And that way you'll keep your readers with you. Luke's writings remind me of that. I want to add adjectives and exclamation marks to the spectacular events that he's matter-of-factly stating, understating even. Uh, verse 1 there, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's, that's a humble summary of, of the gospel. Until the day he was, I would want to say, incredibly taken up to heaven. Verse 2, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his gruesome yet remarkable suffering, verse 3, he astonished them. No, he just sent, says he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Luke no doubt knows that the word proof here is a big word in verse 3. But it isn't too strong. It isn't exaggeration in this case. After all, they saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they ate with him numerous times and over 40 days. 
More still, they saw him taken up to heaven before their eyes, verse 2. If proof was demanded, what more could be expected? Just one sighting was enough for Thomas, doubting Thomas, to believe. But here we have 40 days, death, resurrection, ascension within those 40 days, intentionally bursting with evidence, chosen witnesses and others, sometimes small groups, sometimes large groups, groups mixed in various formations, a time of adding proof to proof day after day. Why all this attention? Why all this effort? Because this was the most important period in the history of the universe. And I don't think I'm overstating that. Even above creation, I would put these 40 days and the new creation still ahead. In God's master plan, it's got red arrows pointing here and a big circle around it. All of the Old Testament is pointing to this and all of the New Testament is pointing back to it. Luke's Gospel, and now the book of Acts, humbly brings unprecedented, unrepeatable events which break all the natural laws to the attention of people who appreciate reason, appreciate historicity, appreciate evidence and credibility. Those in search for truth are told to look here. New Testament faith, the biblical faith, is not wishful thinking in the absence of evidence, as is popularly understood. It is conviction based on layers of evidence. I believe my wife loves me, and the reasons for having this conviction are sound, I think, and they are numerous, and they spread over 20 years. To suggest such belief is irrational or wishful thinking is itself irrational and deluded. Is the book of Acts then historical, or is it a religious book about God? The whole point of Luke's good news is that the two are wonderfully inseparable, history and theology. The Lord Jesus entered our world, died and was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father's side. Do we put that in the history section of the library or the theology and religion section? Luke's saying it's wonderfully both. The wondrous is true and the truth is wondrous. The wondrous is true, and the truth is wondrous. Was the natural order of things suspended or rearranged by Jesus? Of course they were. No one is claiming that miracles are every day. The disciples and and the crowds were shocked by the miracles. And just ask the unbelieving disciples. And in in that sense, our sceptical friends are in good company. It's quite understandable to have doubts about the Christian claims. And yet the apostles, when confronted again and again and again with the risen person, Jesus, his voice and his hands and his side, well, their disbelief had little chance but to give way to the person standing repeatedly before them. How could their reluctance to believe not dissolve when flooded with waves of, verse 3, many convincing proofs that he was alive? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? Well, we don't need to guess the topic. Jesus spoke repeatedly, it says there, about the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' key message in Luke and the other Gospels too. Now, my Malaysian friend loves talking about food. 
Another friend of mine loves talking about the footy. Another friend loves talking about politics. Now, Jesus no doubt spoke about everyday things too, but his favourite topic, it seems, was the kingdom of God. Verse 3, he spoke repeatedly about the kingdom of God during this very special time. The kingdom of God was not only Jesus' topic in the gospel accounts, it also frames the whole book of Acts that we're beginning now. Here we're seeing it in the first verses, but it concludes the book of Acts as well, this mention of the kingdom, chapter 28, verse 23, and again in verse 31. You might like to turn your Bibles briefly there, but it turns out that this was the Apostle Paul's favorite topic too. 28 verse 31, the last verse in the book of Acts says that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, two inseparable topics, with all boldness and without hindrance. The Lord who is only moments away from ascending as king of all kings to the right hand of God understandably wants this soon-to-be invisible reign to be very clear. Yes, you have a Roman Caesar and a Jewish King Herod, today a Prime Minister Morrison or Albanese, but be assured, the Lord is King. And so when your friends hear this news from you, for some of them, it will be like hearing of a precious treasure in a field or the pearl they've always dreamed of. It sounds too good to be true. Is it really true? that all of my longings are met by God himself, who shows himself to me in the Lord Jesus. Forty precious days, one crucial message, the king has come. And so the church is to get our heads around this kingdom. The king has come. The gates of his kingdom are thrown open for a limited time. Open. He's come, heartbeat one. And so may our years... Uh, May our king's wondrous tour of the earth before returning to his throne infiltrate your view of your world and yourself. Our dog Molly somehow knows when another dog is about to pass by our back gate. It annoys some of those people who are walking their dogs past. Sometimes she'll want to be let out of our house really urgently so that she can run to the back gate in time to bark at it. Another dog is just so invigorating for Molly. Car, truck, man, woman, car, woman, kids, dog, dog. And off she'll go. One time she ran so hard into the gate that her back end actually lifted up. Lifted up. Peter and Paul spoke of having eyes for things above, not earthly things. Not the things that we otherwise, by default, will be absolutely consumed by. Those with hearts for the king distinguish between the temporary, inconsequential, fading, 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 kingdom. An inquirer coming to our home group. A child praying to be made more like Jesus. A mum or dad, as we've been encouraged this weekend, leading devotions with the hearts being formed in their homes. Kingdom, he's come for us. Are we excitable, invigorated, energised by our king and his kingdom? 
And is there not room to be more so? Christian heartbeat one, his come, is followed by heartbeat two, he saves. In other words, I'll come to the world to save it, and then all nations will hear of it. So let's consider now his saving, spelled out there in verses four to eight. We pick up from verse four. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wow, what does that mean? The divine spirit, God's own spirit, will somehow occupy humans. Now they've seen what it looks like when the spirit-filled son receives the Holy Spirit at his baptism. But now the spirit-filled son of God, we realize, was sent so that there may be spirit-filled children of God. And so despite our ordinary appearances, Christians are remarkable creatures. An Aussie who is spiritually regenerate, reborn, revived, a kingdom citizen, is a vastly different creature from what she was the moment before she came to Christ. As C.S. Lewis put it, Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. A creature now being fit for heaven with Christ's glorious righteousness. If only you could see it now, what God sees in us. What on earth would it mean for them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? They sensed the Spirit was empowering Jesus' ministry. Was the same in store for them? And we see lots of miraculous events happen through the apostles. But what would, mean, what would it mean for the average Peter, James, John, who are famous for their squabbles and weakness and mistakes? Jesus indicated in verse 4, something very big is going to happen in the coming days, so stay here. Jesus is seeing a kingdom that will be built through the millennia, across the world, lasting forever. The disciples are thinking, however, still patriotically, locally. They're thinking in a small and soon way. Verse 6, and they gathered around him and their question reflects that. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's why John Calvin says about their question in verse 6, there are as many errors in this question as words. There are as many errors in this question as words. They hadn't yet realized Judaism was the cradle for Christianity. Even King David and his kingdom were a mere shadow to anticipate the divine king, the eternal kingdom, the real promised land. Nevertheless, what a difference the Holy Spirit makes to Peter and the others. They need the Spirit, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power for what? Power, notice, to be my witnesses in concentric circles that radiate outward. Jerusalem, yes, but then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the, the earth. Ends of the earth, he's come. Weary world, rejoice. He's saving. Here you're finding yourself at Dremoyne or perhaps watching this online. His saving and persevering work is right now taking place in you, his eternal citizens. God's vision is, even today, increasingly becoming your vision. 
The king of heaven's spirit in you means his heartbeat is becoming your heartbeat. You're interested in things the world has no interest in. A man, a woman, after God's own heart is being formed. He's come. He's saving. And thirdly, he's returning. Verses 9 to 11, he's returning. As the parables instruct us, Christians are those who live expectantly, productively, going about the king's business while he's away before he comes back. That's the parable Jesus gave to the disciples the last time they thought the kingdom was all going to happen at once and soon, back in Luke 19. Again, the disciples are prepared now in Acts to see much saving and time will, uh, much saving and time must occur before the king returns. Jesus' return will resemble Jesus' departure, but not merely played in reverse. In verse 9 we read, After he had said this, he was taken up before the disciples' very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It's not so much that what goes up must come down, but surer even than the laws of gravity, the one who went up will surely return and descend. The ascension is mentioned three times here in Acts chapter 1. It seems important. It's there in verse 2, it's in verses 10 and 11, and it's there again in verse 22. It's framing this story. It seems to be significant. What's the importance of the ascension in the work of Jesus? And what has it got to do with the kingdom? Well, to quote the little devotional we got from David Cook, and to give it another little plug for the weekend in, And those of you online, by the way, might request this by email. We'd love to send it out to you. Uh, David writes in this devotional, Jesus' resurrection culminated in his ascension. And his ascension means his total exaltation to the right hand of God, where he intercedes for us. He now occupies the highest place. He bestows gifts to his people. And from the place of exaltation, he will return in triumph to bring in the new heaven and the new earth. It is little wonder that Paul encourages us to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at God's right hand. Friends, Jesus didn't just show himself to be king through his miracles. No, this this ascension, this exaltation to God's right hand demonstrates the Lord Jesus' earthly work was successful He rises to reign. All authority, he said, has been given to me, and now we see it with our eyes as this risen sun ascends to rule over heaven and earth. And as certain as he ascended, the apostles assure us, so will he descend. Though his return won't be to the same audience, it won't be so localized next time. No, next time the world at large, as Jesus taught in Luke's Gospel, Volume 1, the world at large will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Or as Jesus taught in Matthew's Gospel, 24, 27, a great memory verse. 
For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's come. He's saving. He's returning. The Christian heartbeat. If you are listening to this and you have not yet come to the cross of this king for this for forgiveness, if you've not yet made peace with this coming king, this king would say that your, the building of your life is in very real danger of a great crash. Jesus' return will be an awful moment when the chances for reconciliation with God will suddenly dawn on you as being over. I'd love you to come and talk to me or for you to talk to a Christian friend if that might be you. Jesus offers peace for your mind and rest for your soul. For those who love the Lord Jesus, this moment will bring not only awe and excitement, but a wonderful sense of, at last, at last, that every third beat of my heart is met with a vision of his coming. I knew you were coming, and I'm so pleased to see you. The pain and the sadness and the crying and the death are over. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to develop this heartbeat for your day, your month, your home group, your growth group, your youth group, your engagement at work. It's a poor analogy, but perhaps you will even think of Molly, our dog. When you hear words like king, kingdom, salvation, in a world occupied with everything else. Amen.